Let's open our Bibles to the book of First Peter. We're in chapter 2, picking up where we left off from a few weeks ago. If you don't have a Bible, you know the routine. We'd love to loan you one. You just have to raise your hand high in the air. And the ushers will be happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow with us. Again, First Peter chapter 2. We're going to be doing all of two verses this morning, looking at verses 9 and 10. We return to our series that we've entitled Sojourn. And by the way, the guest speakers, they're going to pick up basically where I leave off and just continue to take us through First Peter. So I'm excited for that as well. And though I'll be here next Sunday, uh, Chaplain um, uh, Wayne Hall is going to be uh, guest speaking for us. Um, so... Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 9 and 10. When we were in chapter 1, I, we had a message from verse 2 entitled, Five Truths About Us. And so we come basically to like a part 2 to that, and our message today is five more truths about us that Peter gives and lays out. All right? I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you don't mind. In honor of God and his word, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Your Bible might say peculiar. That you and I, that we may proclaim the praises of Jesus, of him who called us and really delivered us out of darkness and into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but now the people of God, could not obtain mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right. Take a moment, say hello to your neighbor, and then you can have a seat, and we'll jump in. Well, we've been away for uh, two weeks now. I guess three if you count this particular week, we return to Peter's letter, remember, written to Christians living in a widespread region of Asia Minor. Today, it's modern-day Turkey. These Christians were believers in the first century that came from, the majority of them, from a Jewish background. Uh, today, uh, we would perhaps refer to them as Messianic Jews. So they were Jewish by ethnicity, Jewish by their faith upbringing, and yet living as displaced people groups outside of Israel. And so Peter, when he identifies them, he refers to them as pilgrims and exiles and sojourners, and hence you know, the title of our series. And he'll come back to that same label, actually in a couple of verses. In verse 11, he addresses them in the same way. And, and although living as immigrants where they were, those people, they retained their Jewish culture, they retained their, their customs uh, in their family and also in their faith traditions. And so we've seen as Peter writes to the, uh, this group uh, about Jewish things, referencing the Torah, the, the law, referencing prophets, referencing the Old Testament, they, they, they would be tracking, they would be understanding. It would be like us 
uh, today if I wrote a letter to you guys and we're talking about Team Family Mart versus Team Lawson, right? And you're in Okinawa, you, you're tra well, now there's Team 7-Eleven, but, or if we talked about how there's, uh, there's more vending machines in Okinawa than there are people, right? Like, um, right? we're all tracking, everyone understands that. Like, you need to take a bank loan to go buy mangoes in Okinawa, right? We, everyone's good. So Peter's writing to them about these things, they're tracking with him. And, and he knows firsthand because of who he is, right? He is the Apostle Peter. He's the disciple Peter. He, he's walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. And he knows that following the Lord um, and living for the Lord is not easy. It's an amazing journey. But it's, it's an arduous one, right? And, and we've perhaps we know that truth as well. It's wonderful. But there are times where we become weary, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. He's walking uh, on, on water, water one minute uh, and then drowning the next. And so Peter understands all these things. And he's relating to these uh, people that he cares about uh, who haven't seen the Lord, and yet they love the Lord and they're walking by faith. And, and Peter is a realist. And so he writes to encourage them but not to sugarcoat the realities of, of life, even as God's redeemed. And so he folds into his letter that even as Christians, we will experience hard things, hardships, tough times, rough roads. It, it is part of the package deal of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, we didn't opt for suffering. Right? We didn't check the box of, uh, you know, what, what are the uh, extras that we want in this package of being a Christian, yet it's included by default in the essential kit of faith. It, it's there, suffering. And so Peter wants to prepare us for that reality, that hard knocks are going to come. And along the way, he then instructs us very practically, very practically, what, what is then Christian life look like? What should it look like? We're following Christ, and what does it look like then in our relationships with one another? What does it look like in our friendships? What does it look like in our family? What does it look like in our workplaces? What is that supposed to look like? But before Peter gets to that, before he unpacks those areas, um, that we then should do, the things that we should do, the things, how we ought to live, Peter once again wants to make sure and ensure that we understand who we are. What has Christ done? And, and who are we then in the Lord? And so it's verses 9 and 10 this morning that reinforces the foundation that Peter laid back in chapter 1 where he already has told us who we are in Christ, and he adds to that foundation. He solidifies that foundation. And it becomes the basis then for the petition that he makes in the application from verse 11, where he then says, so I'm going to beseech you, I'm going to beg you, this is how we ought to live in each of these arenas of our life, and he'll continue from the rest of the chapters in the book on. What we do should flow from who we are. Right? What we do flows from who we are. And who we are 
is established by who Christ is and what Christ has done. Remember, we talked about that before. We can't get, we cannot get that backwards. Who Christ is and who Christ says we are. Who Christ says we are. And that's what's found in verses 9 and 10. Five powerful declarations of who Christ says we are. Oh, I just, Julie, is your last Sunday with us? Is it somebody else's last Sunday with us? Okay, I'm going to pray for you at the end. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to pray you back too, though. Yeah. Verse 9. He says, but you are, and he gives us this list. We'll just start with the first three words, but you are. We are joining Peter, rejoining Peter in mid-thought of his developing, of his call to action for us. In the previous verses, Peter's pulled in some really interesting metaphors that we talked about describing God's desire um, or our desire that God wants us to have and then God's design for us. Right, what, what our spiritual appetite should be and what God's spiritual objective is. Right? Our, our part, he told us, is to cultivate a spiritual hunger for God's word like a, a baby that wants milk. That's our part, to cultivate a hunger for the word of God, for the things of God. And God's part is to construct us then into a spiritual house, building us up for God's glory, like living Legos, stacking us, connecting us together. And as we're connected together for uh, a greater purpose that transcends just ourselves. Certainly for us individually, God has a plan and a purpose. But as a collective, uh, we have a purpose greater than just our individual selves. And God is building us and putting us together. It was God's plan from the beginning, Peter reminds us, promised and prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. He quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from the Psalms that Jesus is our chief cornerstone. We're all aligned to him. He's the, uh, the foundation of our spiritual house. If we're not aligned to the, Jesus, our, our chief cornerstone, then we're going to get wonky and wacky. It's not going to look good. And some will come as we come to him as a living stone, and some will come and some will receive him and be saved from judgment. But also God has foretold, and Peter reminds, there's going to be others who won't. They will rebel, and they will reject. And it's a terrible place to be. Because Peter says, and they will also suffer his righteous wrath. The Bible is very clear. There's only two kingdoms we're a part of. We're either in the kingdom of his light or in the kingdom of darkness. We're either Jesus is our king or Satan is our ruler. And by default, that's where we start, in darkness, by default, lost in sin, destined for hell. And then Peter assures his reader that those of us who've come to Christ by faith, as to, verse 4, a living stone, as a living stone being built up into his spiritual house, we're not condemned. We're not tripping up. We're not stumbling over Jesus. But you are. Here's the contrast. We're not that, but what are we? We are, number one, you are 
a chosen generation. We are a chosen generation. A few weeks ago, our youth had their youth camp, and this was the theme, and their camp title is called Chosen. And I thought after, as I was studying, I thought, man, I should have just had the youth leaders come and teach this portion. They already studied and they already had it. But what a wonderful declaration that God makes about you and me. Let that sink in for a little bit. I mean, we're going to unpack each of them. I'm just going to leave them as they are, that you are a chosen generation. Now, Peter has used this word several times already, this word chosen. In the original Greek, it's the word uh, eklektos. It's translated as elect back in chapter 1, verse 2. Again, describing us. God chose you. God elected you. God adopted us. God specifically picked you to be a part of his family. You remember we talked about this isn't like, uh, you know, our, our schoolyard pick where you're being picked for teams and you're thinking, oh, I'm just, you know, it's you and the, la- and the last person by default, they have to pick you. No, no, God, God chose you. It wasn't as though you had, he had no other options. Like, oh, okay, I guess I'll take Chris, you know. That word appears in verse 4 and verse 6, which it describes Jesus in the same way. Chosen by God. And so what does that mean? What's the implication of that? It, It implies that God has a great love for you. That's the implication. That God loves you with an everlasting love. A tremendous love, a great love, a love that never fails, a love that never ends, a love that Paul tells us that we can't be separated from, ever. And and even if, here's the crazy thing, right? Even when we didn't want anything to do with God, God still chose us. And even if others didn't choose you, or like Jesus, Perhaps you know firsthand the, the soul pain experienced by rejection, by betrayal, by those in your life who should have been there for you or protecting you, family and friends. We can even add to that list spiritual leaders who should have, and yet they didn't. People who should have protected you, stood with you. And yet they became the source of pain. They became the ones who caused the heartbreak and the deep wounds. See, you understand that that is the story of Jesus too. And God chooses you. And God loves you. And he wants to make you his own. That's what it means to be chosen. When he calls us a generation, in the Greek, it's the word genos. And often when we think of generation, we, we think of, at least what I think of, I, I think of generation in terms of our age. Right? The, the, by the year that I was born and the music that I listened to. But the idea here is that th- this is true of every generation. See, regardless of our earthly generation. We are part of God's generation. That word genos, it means kindred, it means kind, uh, kin, and it's a collective of various kinds, but all together. The world has their 
its own delineation of generation. Right? By most account, most accounts, people born in 1946 to 64 were called the baby boomers. Baby boomer generation. For some of us, that's our parents. For some of you, that's your grandparents. Maybe for some of you, that's even your great-grandparents. I don't know. <laughs> From 65 to 79, uh, that's Gen X. That, that's me. The greatest generation, by the way. The best generation. And then from 80 to 94, uh, just kind of a lump, the, the millennials. Some think that earlier called Generation Y, but the millennials. From 95 to 2012, that's Gen Z. That's all of my kids. And then through 2013, now there's a new name. They're called Gen Alpha. And each generation has their own uh, characteristic, alleged, descriptor, a collective character trait of these generations, right? They, they say that baby boomers were the, the idealistic, that Gen X was the individualistic. We'll do it ourselves. That millennials, they want to change the world. Free-spirited, collaborative. Gen Z, coming back to realistic, a little skeptical, Right, they're looking for authentic. And then Gen Alpha, because they're so young, there's not a label. They're just they're the most tech-savvy. They, they are growing up in a tech-saturated uh, world. They know more than the rest of us when it comes to digital things. And so there's all these different descriptors. But when it comes to us being the chosen generation, what's the descriptor of us? Well, we're loved. <laughs> we belong to the Lord. And God calls us to this one distinct generation, and it's not defined by our physical birthdays. It's not defined by societal characteristics or traits, but it is, decide, it is, excuse me, it is defined by the, the whole collective of our spiritual birth. We come to faith and we become part of God's generation, a chosen generation. That's you and that's me. And so Peter just simply says that's who we are. What else does he say that we are? Number two, he says we're a royal priesthood, but you are a chosen generation. Number one, number two, you are a royal priesthood. You know, back in verse five, he's already called us a holy priesthood. And if you're with us, I mentioned to you that for readers of his day who came out of their Jewish faith, for them to hear this and read this, it would have some shock value to the, to the Jew who grew up under the Mosaic law because they knew that in order to be part of the priesthood, you had, maybe that, that my, my dumb joke I told, you, you had to have the right genes, Levi genes, right? You had to be part of the tribe of Levi. If you weren't from the tribe of Levi, then you're not a priest. You're not a Levite. You're not, and, and, and if you want to be part of the high priest and the priestly family, then you have to be part of Aaron's family. Right? You're 23andMe and Ancestry.com and DNA tests. It better point you back to Aaron or you're not, that, you can't even be part of that. You're not even considered. Don't even turn in the application. And yet, once again... 
So for them to hear that we, they are and we are a priesthood, that would be shocking. And Peter repeats it. Now the truth is, this really isn't new. It would have some shock value, but at the same time, it isn't new. See, God's intention for the nation of Israel was to be a type of priestly nation. I mean, within the nation, they had priests and Levites, but as a collective, they themselves were called to be a, a type of priesthood for the entire world. See, God tells Moses when he's up on Mount Sinai, he says, Now indeed, if you obey my voice, you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations, chosen. For the whole earth is mine, and unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, verses 5, the beginning of verse 6. That was God's plan from the beginning. And so we fast forward to the New Testament. Remember Jesus said, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And in many ways, we know that the promises and the plans, the prophecies of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, also but fulfilled in us as the body of Christ. They play out in the New Testament, and even today. See, we as the church today get to enter into the fulfillment of what God had planned. And we come into that. We get to then, as the body of Christ, be a, if you will, a kingdom of priests to the people around us. But notice Peter uses a different descriptor. Before he called us a holy priesthood, back in verse 5, now he says we're a royal priesthood. And it's important. It's an important change. In the Old Testament, God established particular offices, roles of leadership. And he identified them and he gave the qualifications for them, these roles of offices that had different responsibilities. And so for the spiritual matters of God's family, he ordained the Levites. You remember, he called them to himself. And out of the Levites, it's Aaron's family. That, that's who gets to be the high priest. So that's spiritual matters. For uh, civic matters, matters of governance, God raised up kings. And so you had a, a political leader. You had a, a civic leader. It was judges at first, and then it became kings. A priest couldn't be a king and a king couldn't be a priest. You were one or you were the other. Now, there's also prophets. And kings could, and we do see, right? remember King Saul prophesy? They, they could do prophetic functions. They might have prophetic gifting. That's true of both the king and of the priest. In fact, even in the New Testament, this past Holy Week, if you were reading through, you remember, it's Caiaphas, the high priest, and he says, it's expedient, it's good that one man would die for the nation. And he didn't realize he was prophesying. It's John who says, oh, that guy was prophesying. 
And so they had prophetic function, but they didn't hold the title as, or office as prophet. So you had priests, kings, and prophets, these distinct roles. And again, they weren't allowed to cross over. There was one time where King Saul tried. Try to take on the, the role and the responsibility of the priest. And he gets rebuked. He gets punished for it. Again, distinct and different by design. Until Jesus. When Christ came, Christ came and is our high priest. He is the true prophet. And he, of course, is our, our eternal king. And so Christ then fulfilled all of those offices, which, again, pointed to him. They're a foreshadow of Christ to come. He is prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all those roles perfectly. As God's kids, as we come into faith in Christ, the Bible talks about how we're clothed with the, the, the righteousness of Christ, Christ's perfection. And coming into Christ, then we're also then marked with his identity. And what does that mean for us then? Well, as we sang, we were the beggars, but now we're royalty. We get to become, we are kids of the king. And God brings us into his family. And now we're part of God's royal family. I don't know about you, that, that kind of blows my mind. And so Peter wants us to understand who we are, the Lord. Again, he'll get to what, what do we do? How do we live? He'll get there. But it's good for us to reinforce this foundation, add to this foundation, these things, that we're a chosen generation, that we're part of God's royal priesthood. Some years ago, we had a sweet sister in our church, uh, Moss Jensen. You guys remember Moss, anybody? She, uh, she was married to a, a Marine. They were stationed here, left. Actually, we prayed them back, and he came back again. We had him for two rounds. But I found out, we found out, we were surprised to find out that Moss was a princess of the royal family of Bali. I was like, trip out. <laughs> and so, you know, I had a thousand questions for her, a million questions for her. And she used to serve in the, the nursery. So it was fun to tell people, we have a princess changing diapers. <laughs> that's, that's how cool we are here, you know. Royalty. One time I tried to visit the emperor of Japan. We were in Tokyo. I wanted to bring him Mr. Donuts. <laughs> Palace was closed. <laughs> what, what's the implication of this title for us? What does it mean then? What does it mean for you and for me that we're, we're a royal priesthood? And Peter will talk about that, how we... What does it look like? How does that fleshed out? How do we put a handle on that truth and carry it around with us every day? Let me just give you the broad category. It, it, it means service and status. Right? Priests serve, and to be royalty means you, you have a position. But most importantly, it means privilege of access. You and I can come freely and boldly into God's presence anytime that we need. That, that was a right, that was a privilege that was reserved only for the priesthood. You and I living in those days, we'd have to stop at particular barriers, depending on who we were, depending on your gender, 
depending if you were a Gentile or a Jew. You could only go so far. And in order for us to even get into the place where the Holy of Holies was, you, you couldn't just be a regular Levite, in fact. You had to be part of Aaron's family. Actually, you had to be a high priest. And you could only do that once a year. I mean, that's how restrictive it became. These concentric circles of getting into the presence of the Lord. And so the fact that Peter reminds us we are a royal priesthood. We, we have access, free access, this privilege of coming to the Lord anytime that we need. We don't need an appointment. You don't need to be on a schedule, no matter where you are. You know, last week during Holy Week, we were looking at the events uh, of Christ's life leading up to his uh, crucifixion. Of course, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But one of the amazing things that happened when Jesus was hanging on a cross for your sins and mine to give his life for us, the Bible says that the veil of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the place was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. Did you guys know that? It's amazing. From the top to the bottom. I, I mean, it doesn't say exactly, but when I read that, I, to me, it's the implication that God himself ripped open the curtain for us. In fact, when they are questioning Jesus about who he was, when they're like blasphemy after, he says, well, you said it, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. It says that the high priest ripped, he ripped his robe. You know, the, for the high priest to rip his robe, that, that, that's a, an outward symbol of that office is done. And so the veil of the temple ripped into the high priest tearing his robe. All of the, a great reminder and visual for us that God himself and through God himself and through Christ, which Hebrews tells us, right? He is the veil. He, we get to come in and we have free access because you are a royal priesthood. What else are we? We're a holy nation. Generation is genos. This word nation in the Greek, it's the word ethnos. It's where we get the English word ethnicity from or ethnic. And it can be defined in different ways, but one definition is a, a multitude of individuals with the same nature. And Peter ascribes what our nature is. We're a holy nation. A holy nation. And I think that's what Peter had in mind here, this idea that we are a mixed bag of people. We are a multitude of various shades and shapes of diverse background. And yet what unites us, what brings us together? Or we're still distinct, right, in the sense of, like this beautiful mosaic or a kaleidoscope, all of these pieces and put together to make this very beautiful thing called the church. But what brings us together? What unites us? Christ does. Anybody here like to people watch? I'm not the only one, me and Michael. All right. You've been sitting around, and you, you, you see this group of people, maybe they come into your, your view. And they're very different. And you're going to wonder, like, how do they go together? Right? <laughs> trying to figure out, like, 
is that a family? Is that a sports club? But like you're trying, you know, like you're wondering, like how, how are they connected? And sometimes there's clues. They're all tall. You're like, oh, okay, probably a basket, probably some kind of sports team. They all have cauliflower ear. You're like, all right, probably wrestlers or MMA. Sometimes there's clues. They all have lanyards or cameras. Okay, that's a tour group. They all look different, but you know, some, something you know, unites them. You look around at us. We are a very mixed group. Right? Imagine if we went on a field trip right now. We're gonna, like, <laughs> people try to figure out, like, what in the world is this group? Well, Peter tells us what unites us. We're people called out by God, to God and for God. See, holy means to be separated. It means purified. Our holiness comes from Christ. But it, 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 agios, it, mean, it means to be called out. It means to be separated apart from uh, other things for a special purpose. Right? It's your dress blues. It's your ball gowns. It's the nice... Um, Dishes that you bring out at special occasions. All right, that's us. We're, we're separated. And we're made holy because of the Lord. It is one of the supernatural transactions. The Bible says that we've been justified by faith. Christ dying for you and for me. The supernatural transaction where we were wrecked. We were spiritually bankrupt. Our credit rating that wasn't even zero, it was negative. And God then imputes, he then uh, it, you know, deposits into your bank account. Right? He takes, Jesus took your spiritual credit score, which is negative, and he said, I will take your score, I'm going to give you my perfect, I don't know what, it, 850 or whatever, right? Like a thousand. Perfect. And then he sets us apart for God's special purpose, which Peter will bring us into, again, the rest of the letter. Number four, we are his own special people. His own special people, which he then amplifies in verse 10, who once were not a people. There's a before and after. One time we weren't God's own special people, but now we are. But now we are because of Christ, the people of God, who at one time we didn't obtain mercy. We didn't understand the mercy of God, but now we have obtained mercy. And so you are God's own special people. Now, again, your Bible might translate it as peculiar, which is an interesting translation too, right? You're a peculiar bunch. That word peculiar or that word special, it, it means to be um, preserved. It, it means, it's a title of ownership. One's own special property, protected, treasured, beloved, guarded. Um, my oldest son, Noah, when he was a little guy, three, four, in that toddler age, he used to carry around this red tin box, and he would collect 
all kinds of random pieces of junk. Like we'd be walking around, he'd, he'd be the kid that would pick up a stick or pick up the, I'm like, put that down. Like he'd always be collecting things. And so in this red box that he had, he had like, you know, broken toys from McDonald's. He had a string, um, a rusty bolt and screw that he found, this broken magnet. I mean, just a Lego person. I mean, all these random, random things. And he carried around in this little red box, tin box. And so one day, I'm like, hey, we, we didn't throw that away. Like, so I took his red box, and he, he protested, no. Those are my delections. My delections? That's not even a word. You know, like, it's like, no, those are my delections. They're special to me. I found them. I'm like, they're junk, Noah. Let's just trash it. He's like, no, no. He wanted to keep them. And thus began his life of hoarding things. But anyways. Uh, gang, you... You are God's delection. <laughs> Random, broken, rejected. We are broken people. We are crackpots. We are flawed. Right? We're, we're soiled. We're messed up. We're misfits. Random. Now, a few of you are intact. You're like the little Lego guy. <laughs> But I hope that you realize that regardless of our starting state, God has made you his own special people. And he brings you into his, if I can spiritualize it, his red tin box called the family of God. And to use Noah's word, you are his delection. Treasured. His own very special people. Nothing can change that. And, and Peter reminds us of this beautiful uh, it's the spiritual before and after pictures. Right? Before and after pictures can be inspirational, can they? You see them like, you know, health coaching, the fitness program, this dietary supplement. They have the, like the before picture, which often just looks like me, and then, you know, the after picture. This is our spiritual before and after picture. And, and, it's, and, and the be, spiritual before and after picture is probably the most beautiful one. It's the most amazing transformation. It's like those cardboard testimonies. You ever see those? People write and they flip them over. We, we were once not a people of God. Understand God loved us. God pursued us. But we weren't the children of God. We were created by God. But we didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And Peter says, you weren't at one time. But now you are. And, and you didn't understand. You didn't experience the mercy of God, but, but now you do. And there's all these other pictures, right? We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. I think the most radical one, Ephesians reminds us, we were dead. We were dead. Spiritually, or physically alive, but spiritually dead. And yet now we're alive. We didn't have mercy, but now we have God's mercy in a never-ending supply. The fulfillment of what Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. It's a beautiful song too. So we are God's own special delection. 
Here's an application he gives us, and it's number five, and we'll close here. That you and I may proclaim the praises of him who called us. Paul says he, he transferred us, delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness, out of our default state, and he brought us into his kingdom of light, which Peter says it's marvelous, glorious, it's wonderful. <clears throat> Number five, you're taking note. It outlines itself really easy. It's an easy part. It's an easy place to preach from. We're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're God's own special people. And number five, we are proclaimers of Jesus. That Greek word for proclaim, it's the word exangelo. And it's a compound word, ex meaning outside, right, exit, external, outward. And that word gelo comes from the root word angelos, where we get the English word angel from, which basically just means messenger. That's the idea. The root word just means messenger. And so we, we are God's messengers who have been called to go out. That's the idea. We, we proclaim, we, we share. We are God's holy, special, reserved, broken, messed up, yet filled with God's mercy and grace. God calls him to, us to himself. And we receive all these things. And you are these things. Not that we would boast. Not that we become arrogant, walk around, aha, look how great I am. Right? That's the mistake the Pharisees made. That was the mistake that began to permeate the children of Israel and their mentality. Oh, we're the children of Abraham. We're great, and you stink. No, no, no. Not that we become proud, but rather we be so moved by what Christ has done for us that we then wouldn't be proud, but we would be proclaimers. That we wouldn't hoard these blessings, but we would share these blessings. The, the praises of Jesus who called us, who delivered us, who rescued us, who saved us out of darkness into his light. And we would do that out of a deep gratitude of what God has done for us. Paul writes really similar to the Colossians in Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Paul one time says, who's sufficient for these things? Who's really qualified? No one is. But God counted up. God enables us. God qualified us. Qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Do I have that verse up? Oh, we do. Right? Why? Because he's rescued us. He's rescued us from the power and the dominion of darkness. And he brought us into, delivered us. Another translation will say transfer. For us, you, our military community, God PCS'd you out of darkness and into his light and the kingdom of his beloved son and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. See, the Bible says this is true about us. And what do we do in response to that? One of the things that we do, well, we let people know. We're called to be ambassadors, walking epistles, 
his light, his salt. I mean, what, what, what's our normal response when someone gives you a gift? I think our normal response is gratitude, right? Normally, hopefully expressed, felt, but hopefully expressed. Right? We try to teach our kids, hey, say thank you. And generally speaking, I, I would contend that the greater the gift, the greater the gratitude. Your, your level of thanks when someone says, oh, I got you this card. Yeah. Thank you. Right? Thank you. And especially if, then if there's words, like if they share meaningful words, it, their level of gratitude goes up. If they put a little, if they put a little cashola in there, right, then, oh, you know, your gratitude goes up. What if they put a card with cat? What if they put a keychain in there? What if they had a keychain with a key to a car that they got you? I mean, is your gratitude for a card the same as your gratitude for a car? I guess it depends on the car, right? But, you know, you guys are tracking. You understand my illustration. And what if you're sick and someone, you know, gave you their kidney? What's your gratitude for your kidney? I don't think it's the same as a card, right? Like your gratitude for a cupcake and your gratitude for someone giving your kidney, hopefully there, there's, there's some difference there. You guys tracking? What's our gratitude being rescued from darkness? What's our gratitude for a cure for the disease of sin? What's the gratitude for a brand new life and a fresh start? What's our, what's our gratitude? I mean, what should happen in our heart? And what should happen from our lives? Peter says, we should proclaim the praises of Christ. That should be our default. All that Christ has done for us. The only reason that we are these things is because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And then we get to proclaim his praises who rescued us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We're going to pray for our dear sister, Julia. Julia, thank you. Julia's here. Uh, on UDP, just a short-term, plugged in, jumped in, been serving with our kids, uh, shamed all of us. What a great example. Thank you. We love you. We count you forever, family. We're going to miss you. But we'll pray you back, too. Yeah. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace in our lives. We thank you for the word that reveals who you are, but also reveals who we are. This powerful reminder today of all that you have done for us, Jesus, especially in a time and a season and a culture that is so big on identity and what a person might identify themselves as and their self-identity. But Lord, you, you ascribe our identity for us. You, you, you give us these beautiful, uh, ordained, holy labels God, that we get to be a royal priesthood, that we get to be a chosen generation, that we get to be a, a, a holy nation, that we get to be your delection, Lord, a very special people that you've called to yourself, your own special people. And God, I pray then for us in response that then we would become proclaimers of Christ. 
in every place that we find ourselves, Lord. And whatever that might look like. Lord, we're so grateful. And one of those blessings that you call us into is into relationship with each other. This thing called the church. This beautiful kaleidoscope and mosaic of different shapes and shades and various backgrounds, Lord. Father, we thank you for our family, and we thank you for Julia, and we pray, God, you would bless her in every way. Grateful for her example, grateful for her testimony, coming in, plugging in, serving with our kids. Uh, Father, be with her. She returns back to Cali and just re-entries, uh, enters life there and the workplace there, and Lord, just would you bless her, and we, we're so grateful. We pray her time in Okinawa would be very special for her. And Lord, help us to live these truths out. They'd be more than just notes that we take uh, in the margin of our Bible or uh, on a notepad, but God, that you would fashion them and form them into the, and weave them into the fabric of our heart. Not that we become prideful of these truths, but we would be proclaimers of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.